Bert Cohen here, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So, yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seeing as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Many years ago on this show, I interviewed author Douglas Blackman about his book, Slavery by Another Name, The Reenslavement of Black Americans from the Civil War to World War II. Like all Americans unfamiliar with the workings of our prison system, I was shocked that slavery was not ended with the end of the Civil War and the 13th Amendment. In fact, serving time often means prison slavery, which continues each and every day in our so-called correctional facilities. You think I'm exaggerating? Slavery? Really? Well, in Blackman's revealing book, he talked about how black men are routinely rounded up, charged with some made-up crime, and instead of going to prison, used to be sold to various uh, uniquely hazardous industries like turpentine making and mining. And unlike plantations where the property owners had an interest in the upkeep of the owned human uh, private industry, had no such investment to maintain. The men were often worked to death. Well, it's only slightly better today, well into the 21st century, when about 800,000 prisoners are put out to work each day for paltry compensation. In Louisiana, for example, it's about four cents an hour. As most Americans, those living on the outside of prison walls and razor wire, we recently celebrated a three-day labor weekend in the fresh air of summer with barbecues, but something else has been going on in, on the inside. And it's also about the human need to feel like full human with dignity and a future. It's not at all surprising that you may not have heard about the nationwide prison strike. After all, this is a population which is intended to be hidden away from us, kept out of sight and, most importantly, out of mind. So we don't have to think about the realities of mass incarceration and how effective it is or is not. Our guest today, Chandra Bozelko, often called the new oranges, the new black. Uh, Chandra Bozelko is a writer and thought leader on all issues related to criminal justice reform. And she was has not been an organizer of the prison strike, seeing how she is currently not in prison, which is a nice thing as a magna cum laude graduate of Princeton University who was in the middle of postgraduate study, law and public health, when she was arrested, Chandra was an unlikely inmate. She served more than six years at the York Correctional Institution, Connecticut's only state women's prison for nonviolent crimes that remain on appeal. While she was incarcerated, she published a book of poetry entitled Up the River, an anthology, 
which won American University's Best Book Award in 2015. Shonda has published over 100 columns since her release, and she's appeared on CNN as an expert commentator and is widely quoted in mainstream media on issues related to incarceration. Her website, which I recommend, is called Prison Diaries. Well, Chandra, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Live. And we do care about democracy for people on the inside as well. What do you know about how the idea of a strike came about? As one who was inside, why do you think a strike uh, might be necessary? What do you know about how the idea of a strike came about? As one who was inside, why do you think a strike, uh, the idea may have come about? Why might it be necessary? Well, first of all, Bert, I want to thank you for finding me and having me on uh, and to talk to your listeners today. Um, I think the idea of the strike, and I, again, I want to be clear just because right, I don't right. want to step on anyone else's toes. I'm not an organizer, so I, I, I'm not speaking for the people who organized it. Right. But I think the idea surrounding it is that the idea of the prison industrial complex, the fact that mass incarceration in our country um, makes so many people, so many individuals and so many companies, so much money that a strike would be like a, a sort of a boycott. Um, and, and that's the only way to kind of register disapproval for conditions inside prisons across the country was to say, we're not participating in your money-making scheme anymore. And how we're going to do that is either not uh, go to work. We won't use the phone systems, which charge exorbitant prices. We won't purchase anything at the commissary, and we're going to try to deny the money that you're trying to make off of human lives being caged. And I was—I uh, learned a lot from my, my daughter, who actually uh, is a senior in college, but she did a program uh, recently where there were 12 inside students and 12 outside students, and, and she told me a lot about uh, the prison. This is near <coughs> excuse me, Philadelphia, and one thing that amazed me, a simple phone call, like— Somebody seems to be making a lot of money from a simple phone call. Like they charge an exorbitant rate for somebody to be able to call their family. What do you know about that? Uh, well, I know a lot about it because my family probably spent close to $10,000 over the time that I was incarcerated, six, a little over six years, just to talk to me. Um, and in the, especially in the days of cell phones where we aren't paying per call anymore, it used to be when I was growing up that you would have a, a long distance rate. Right. If I wanted to call my aunt in Maryland, and that would actually cost me uh, a little bit more than usual. We're, that's completely anathema now with the in, in a day of cell phones. So um, it's actually quite antiquated, the idea that you would pay per minute for a call, but that's what it is. And the rates are much higher than they, they ever would have been um, for regular long distance rates. So it's uh, what you're seeing is that there are uh, it's actually now just a few companies because they've all merged together um, that make ex- billions of dollars off of incarcerated people's families just so that they can get a piece of the communication between the inmate and the people outside. Boy, that's it's so convenient to have a, a uh, closed market that uh, they have nowhere else to go. <sighs> that's that's really good. Yeah. And that's exactly really what the, I think the strike organizers are trying to complain about. Not only just the, the fact that there are some deplorable conditions in inside facilities, but also that, um, the, I mean, as a business model, most people in prisons and their families are generally don't have that much money. Right. Not too many wealthy people who are in prison or that have sure. wealthy families outside. It's generally um, a collecting bin for people who are impoverished. So the the business model of going in and saying let's extract some money from these people who have no money or little money to me never made any sense. 
and it is very exploitive. It's terrible what we do to the families of people outside of prison because they bear most of the cost for these phone calls and commissary and things like that. Um, but I think that's what the strike was saying is, look, everyone is trying to get in on this game of mass incarceration. And unfortunately, that means that the more people who are incarcerated, the more money these people can make. And we need to stop this. Or at the very least, we need to bring awareness to it before we can stop it. Yeah, awareness. That's been missing. And that's been certainly intentional on the part of the uh uh, you know, the powers that be. And uh, I've heard it said uh, by some black friends of mine that, well, we don't, slavery is not legal, but we have mass incarceration. Very similar stuff. And uh, at the, actually, at the end of the show, I'm going to be playing a song, Parchman's Farm, about uh, a farm that uh, used to be uh, a, a, a prison uh, slave place. And, you know, we've heard about chain gangs and things like that. Uh, but uh, there is, I mean, talk about the 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 slavery that that actually is in in prison how real is it can can you give some examples what might a realistic solution be to this 21st century you know slavery mass incarceration uh well there there's a, a couple of things but i think the, the there's this issue of prison labor which is that's kind of the rallying right, cry right. for a lot of people that this is because people are working at least in four states Inmates work for no money, and then in, they work for an average of, I think, 86 cents per hour nationwide. So that is the closest thing. But I think that there's a larger issue beyond the prison labor, which is that, you know, we tend to round up poor people of color mm-hmm. and put them into, you know, like closed compounds um, that we call prisons. So it, it is kind of reminiscent of an old plantation. And then whatever they do, mm-hmm. even if it's work on themselves, supposedly for rehabilitation, or something else, we have corralled large populations of disenfranchised people, and then we tell them, you have to do X, Y, and Z now in order to get out. Um, That I think that's the real, for me at least, as a a white person, is what smacks most of slavery um, in mass incarceration, is the the idea that we, it's literally like a roundup, like the the old catch and release. Mm. Um, Let someone go and, and then grab them and put them back, and then they have to do something. They have to perform in some way in order to gain their freedom again. So that that's the way I see it. I also had an unusual experience in that I really actually did appreciate my prison job because I got out of my cell, um, and I was actually given small perks that most people would think are, you know, actually unthinkable um, minor things in life. Like I got to use a private bathroom when I was at work, whereas in my cell I had to use the toilet in front of other people and in front of the guards. So um, there, that, for me, like prison labor in many ways saved my life, but only because the conditions of incarceration are so severe and so deplorable. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today, I'm very pleased to have Chandra Bazelko, who uh, writes about uh, criminal justice system. We're talking in part about a strike, a prison strike, uh, that has been uh, going on, and she has a, uh, a website called uh, Prison Diaries, which you can learn a lot about basically uh, what we largely don't know. And there are problems unique to women inmates, right? And as you write, incarcerated women need the dignity of freedom more than free tampons. How, how is it? Uh, and I wonder, you know, do they have male guards like on uh, the show uh, Orange is the New Black. How what what are some of the unique problems to women prisoners? Uh, there are a number of them. Um, first of all, yes, they, they, to answer your question, yes, we do have male guards. They are the majority of the staff in these facilities. Oh um, so the I think that a lot of people assume that if you are enter a woman's prison, that it's all female staff. That is not in fact the case. 
Um, so there are obviously gender issues that arise out of that in terms of like strip searches and pat searches and things like that. Um, it would it there are laws that require that women do certain things when like searching us and things like that, but they're not always followed. Um, the second challenge that people in women in prison face is that they menstruate just like the women on the outside, except they have no way to get the supplies that they need to keep themselves clean the way someone who, who, who isn't in prison, the, the access that she has. So uh, this has become a very big issue the past couple of years because there have been a number of instances that have been documented where women were menstruating and were not able to get any type of mm. tampon or maxi pad, and they were forced to sit in blood-soaked clothes. Oh, my God. Um, as terrible as that sounds, um, it's very common. So I, you know, I actually, I think I was at the mm. forefront of that fight because I talked about my own experience of staining my clothes uh, when I wasn't able to get adequate supplies. But I have since, while that is extremely important and needs to be addressed, there is a larger issue, which is that if we concentrate just on what women aren't getting inside, we are neglecting the fact that so many women are the primary give, uh, caregivers of their children. Yeah. So when they're put inside for a minor drug offense or a big uh, example that's coming out of Texas right now is a woman who accidentally voted when she wasn't eligible oh, right. because she had been disenfranchised from a felony conviction. Uh. She's now serving five-plus years for that um, and being separated from her family. So there are instances where women are punished more disproportionately than men um, and in situations that m for men probably would have been ignored. And the impact on their family is quite severe. And then the undignified way that they're treated inside is actually much worse than what men face. Wow. Yeah, you know, that has been so hidden from us. I, I'm frankly, you know, shocked to hear that. And it sounds uh, pretty horrible. And, you know, we there's that old expression, the punishment should fit the crime. I'm getting a sense that the punishment pretty much often doesn't fit the crime that that you know having to go through the indignity of that kind of thing that that's not uh you know in law and i wonder no and i i i think that's a really great point too bert because you when we talk about punishment the punishment with with prison is being sent there you aren't sent there to to be punished it the punishment is actually just living in you know away from society in a, this facility so we've come in this country to kind of understand that people who enter a prison are going there for a certain purpose, which is that to be treated badly or uh, have their human rights violated or be treated in, in an undignified way or insulted. That's a big thing, verbal abuse by guards. That's not the purpose of prisons at all. It's a, supposed to be a place that's cordoned off from society where someone can get some assistance that they need to rehabilitate themselves, either morally financially, um, mentally, physically, whatever is necessary. That was the entire point of a prison. So these, this idea that it's some gulag where you have to be sent away and you don't know what's going to happen to you, but it will be bad, that's actually completely anathema to what the, how this system was designed. Uh, it's so interesting to, you know, that it's all so hidden away. And, you know, the, the whole idea of, of, of punishment, the, the reality that our so-called correction system has an evolved into a punishment system uh, over recent years it does seem like it's it's gotten away from correction more towards simple punishment it seems so medieval to me and i don't want to be uh, insulting uh, medieval historians but from what i know about that why does every prisoner not have access to effective rehabilitation programs i mean if the goal 
is to make the people in prison into better, more productive, law-abiding citizens. Shouldn't an essential part of imprisoning someone, as you say, uh, teaching them that when they do good, they have at least a chance of succeeding? Talk to that, if you would, please, Chandra. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a variety of reasons why rehabilitative opportunities aren't available in in the ways that they need to be inside. First is cost, because remember, you know, things that are worthwhile, such as like therapeutic interventions, like Mm. psychotherapy, um, education, they cost a lot of money. And Mm. so especially in private prisons, which admittedly are only about 6% of the prisons in the country, um, but still they all operate in roughly the same way, is cost cutting. We have to cost continue to reduce the amount of money that we're spending um, for a variety of reasons. Political, here in Connecticut, we have no money anymore. They cut down on services to save money. A big thing for people who are incarcerated that would help them get back on the road to success is allowing them to complete a high school education, which about 85% of people in prison enter without a high school diploma. Mm -hmm. Um, Here in Connecticut, they've actually, you know, cut a lot of those that programming so that you can't, I mean, you can, you just have to wait a lot longer to get off a wait list. Um, and then there are other opportunities that, that just don't exist because there is a punitive culture yes. in the prison, namely the way the guards talk to you, they are insulting, uh, they put you down, they make you think that you cannot succeed. So there are two things. I mean, mm. you have to actually increase and expand the opportunities for self-edification, education, work uh, learning something, a valuable skill that can translate to some financial success on the outside. But then there's also changing the culture, which is that we don't have to be treated like we are less than human by the people who work in the facility. You know, I, it, you're making me think of that amazing movie I saw, and you know what I'm about to say, Shawshank Redemption. I wonder how how real that is. I mean, they, they was, it was brutal. It was, you know, talking down to people, uh, telling the prisoners that, as you say, that they're less than human. Is that something that was that was fairly realistic picture, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, whenever we have these uh, Hollywood depictions of prison, obviously they're going to be a little amped up well, to make the yeah. point. Um, but I don't, I don't think that the, the idea that um, people are being talked to in, in impolite ways, well, that's, a, that's, a, that's the uh, uh-huh. stiff way of saying it. There is a, 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 a verbal abuse abounds in prisons, um, and it may be very subtle. Um, but it's always some type of like erosion of the person's sense of self and sense of human dignity that happens often. And so it's really actually sometimes it's hard to point out because it isn't so obvious as it would be in a movie or Orange is the New Black or something like that. Um, but there is an invidious treatment of people who are incarcerated that, and there's a message very clear that's yeah. sent to them that they are less than and they don't deserve certain things. It just amazes me. I thought the idea was to rehabilitate these people and to make, you know, to help them be better people because, at least in theory, they're going to get out someday. It just, I, I, it, it, and, and cutting the budget all the time. I mean, sure, you can easily cut the budget because there's nobody there to protest. You know, other uh, things that the government spent money on, there are uh, people who are affected by it and they can, you know, come before the legislature and say, hey, you know, this is a good investment, but prisoners don't generally have that opportunity. And I can only imagine the difficulties to organizing a prison strike. It's hard enough to organize people on the outside, believe me, having been in politics for a while, but you were in for a long time. 
How do inmates communicate within a facility and, you know, with regard to this strike, you know, this, this connecting with prisons all across the country? Tell us about that, please. Um, well, the short answer is that they kind of don't. That's one of the ways that a prison operates. And there is a legitimate safety reason for, you know, right. preventing communications. But there sometimes it's taken too far. Um, so in terms of uh, communication communications, the only way an inmate can communicate with other inmates is basically to talk to the people around her, um, and, you know, within literally, you know, in the ear's distance, um, and talk to them verbally. There's an, a very well-known underground method of communication, which is called kites. Um, there's actually a picture of, the, of them on my website. They're folded up like the old little paper oh, footballs, that was. notes that people pass through several other people to get word to someone who's a distance away within the same facility. I do know from reading about the strike that's currently going on that contraband cell phones were needed um, and were snuck in to Uh. people who were organizing, and they would communicate with someone on the outside who would then communicate with another person on the inside with another contraband cell phone. So it took it. I have to say the fact that it's been pulled off in this manner I don't think that people understand the the level of organization and and concerted effort that went into getting this to come off. It's not like a strike at a, a you know manufacturing plant where somebody can go in and talk to everyone and get them riled up and they agree to act collectively. This is a, an extremely intricate method of organizing um, and risky too because uh, having a cell phone in a, a correctional facility for anyone uh, is a crime in wow. all fifty states. So they're Oof. they're taking. They're risking uh, future incarceration. You know, their, their their release date might be extended if someone catches them with the cell phones. And if, when you ask these people, like, you know that this could happen, they say it's worth it because I need to do this to bring awareness to what's happening behind bars. Wow. Uh, no cell phones. That's, you know, the, the common rights that people, you, you know, you think you recognize that, okay, when you go to jail, you don't, you know, you're not exactly a free person. You don't have the same rights as people on the outside. And, you know, obviously when people go into prison, they're not expecting a plush resort, uh, except for maybe uh, maybe the Trump people when they go, I hope. Uh, to be expected is a lack of comfort and less than stellar food and care. I wonder about uh, some of the widespread conditions over which inmates are striking, which are considered really unacceptable, you know, outside the, the less than great conditions that they should expect. Yeah, I mean, institutional living is never going to be luxury living. So even the old 80s, um, you know, mention of club fed, I don't even think that those facilities club were fed. that great. I just think that uh-huh. they were just less bad uh-huh. than other ones. I actually was very lucky where I was that it wasn't, I mean, it certainly wasn't a terrific facility, but it was um, relatively clean and it was not uh, in a building that was falling apart or anything like that. I have read about other facilities, namely in the South, where there is feces running all over the floor because of backed-up toilets and a lack of sanitation, where the uh, inmates were running around with rats on leashes as as if they were their pets. Um, So there's a range of conditions inside of facilities. Um, So like I said, there's the less bad, and then there's the absolute, which I think is illegal to us. subject people to that type of treatment. A good example is what's happening in Texas right now and other southern states with the heat. We're reaching the end of the summer, but sometimes people are 
you know, forced into boxes with no ventilation, oh no way to open a window, no air conditioning when it's 101 outside. So it gets to be, what, 110, 112 inside of their cells. That is inhumane treatment. We would routinely <laughs> arrest someone who left a dog or a child in such conditions in the back of a car, yet we allow this for <laughs> thousands of people in the South who are stuck inside cells um, during the, the summer and when they're in prison. Wow. Yeah, again, they don't want us to see that, but that's real, and it's uh, it's important to communicate that. Uh, and, you know, America has been called incarceration nation because of the massive increase in the number of imprisoned people in recent decades. How widespread is overcrowding? And I imagine just this one aspect has increased tensions within the prisons. What needs to be done to address the causes of overcrowding? Uh, building new prisons, uh, of course. What, what, what can you tell us about the, for example, the infamous Truth and in Sentencing Act and the Sentencing Reform Act? Well, I, I think that overcrowding is a problem everywhere, but I think it's very important that your uh, readers understand that legally overcrowding isn't considered a crisis situation until a facility is over 135% over comp- capacity. So you would think that overcrowding would be 101%. Even one extra body that you don't have a bed for means that it's overcrowded. That's not the case. We The legal definition of overcrowding means you can get as much as a third of the prison, an extra third of you know of those people crammed Jeez. in, and then even then it it's not even an automatic situation where where there would be uh, court intervention going in and saying you know get, issuing an order saying you have to let some of these people go. So to address overcrowding, um, first of all, you'd have to change that definition of what actually constitutes an overcrowded prison. But also, we'd have to just stop packing people in. There's, that's an easy solution. We don't have to sentence people who are convicted of low-level, nonviolent crime to extended periods of time in uh, in their in prison. It's just it's not necessary. The Truth and Sentencing Act was actually uh, you know directed towards people who are not were not convicted of um, nonviolent crimes that were in fact convicted of violent crimes. And it basically made it impossible for them to earn an early release out. So it removed any kind of rehabilitative motivation for people who were convicted of violent crimes because it it kept, what it said was they have to serve the entirety of the sentence. There's no way for them to say, be paroled early or earn good time. That's like a credit against the end of your sentence. Um, And so that originally when people were sentenced, years ago to these long sentences before the Truth and Sentencing Act, they judges and other people planned that they would be out by a certain time. Right. When that Truth and Sentencing Act was passed, it actually ex- made sure they served the whole sentence so that there was there were people that were so they had planned on them leaving, but then, it, as it turned out, they didn't leave. So that contributed <laughs> to the overcrowded conditions, because in terms of planning for how many people, the capacity of the prison, it, they got kind of got a, a surprise in the Truth and Sentencing Act about 20 years ago um, because they had figured on releasing a number of people and then all of a sudden they weren't able to do so. Well, there's always unintended consequences of laws, but that seems uh, pretty extreme. So is it the case that there's less incentive for good behavior and rehabilitation now? I believe so. For people who are subject to the Truth and Sentencing Act, yes, because it used to be that you... For uh, someone who was convicted of a nonviolent crime, you could serve as little as 10% of your sentence mm. if you did things properly. That may sound like it's um, not taking accountability very seriously, and that actually may have, the people who say that might actually have a point, but it, 
it used to also be that if you were convicted of a violent crime, if you really worked on yourself and demonstrated a change in character and a change in outlook and, and uh, you know, that you were not willing to misbehave anymore, then you could be out at the halfway point of your sentence. The Truth in Sentencing Act said, nope, that's not going to work anymore. You're going to have to do at least 85%, if not more. Um, so there really wasn't that motivation for someone to get their act together very quickly uh, to get out because there, there's no there's no incentive anymore. Wow, that's uh, it's just so crazy, but people don't know this. It's kept secret. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Uh, guest today is uh, Chandra Bazelko, who has a, uh, a website called uh, Prison Diaries. She uh, is an expert, somewhat, on prisons, <laughs> having been in there herself for quite a while and has written a lot about it, uh, an expert commentator, on it, and uh, we're talking about this at a time when there is a prison strike, which people still know very little about. Now, what what do you think? We have this mass incarceration now, which seems, I don't know, I, I don't recall it being like this before recently. What contributes most to mass incarceration? Is it the drug laws, excessive punishment, or offenders? For offenders, it sounds a little bit like what we were just talking about contributes to it as well, you know, not allowing people to, uh, you know, get out for good behavior. So what what are some of the factors that contribute to mass incarceration, do you think? Well, it's all the things that you mentioned, Bert, but it's also the problem of recidivism. Um, the Prison Policy Initiative, which is a think tank in Massachusetts, um, released in, in several studies. But um, one thing that they calculated is that about, that about 650,000 people leave jails and prisons every year. If we have 2.2 million in uh, these facilities and 650,000 leave per year, we should be able to get the population down rather quickly. The problem is the recidivism and the return of the people who are um, released and then unable to set a successful course for themselves. Um, And there are a lot of barriers when you come out. I know I'm actually still experiencing them today, even though it's been almost five years since I've come home. Um, discrimination in employment practices, in sure. housing uh, applications, like applying to rent an apartment or something like that. There are often blanket bans on people with felony convictions. Mm. Um, there's, we're actually facing a big issue in the House and Senate right now in Washington, D.C., with the Farm Bill, which has the work requirements for food stamps. A number of people who are leaving prisons are... They have no money, uh, right. like literally no cash, and their Nothing. job prospects, even if they're good, it's going to be a couple of weeks or months before they get a job. So they need some type of ga- stopgap measure so that they can eat. And now that might be taken away with the new work requirements um, if, that, if the House version of the Farm Bill is to go through. So I have heard of and I've read stories about people who say, you know what, the three hats in the cot is guaranteed inside. I'll just, you know, throw a brick through this window or... Do something. Uh, There's a big story in Wyoming of a woman who robbed a bank just so she could go back to prison, um, uh, be, so that she, you know, did, be she would of. be taken care of. She didn't have to worry about um, being homeless and hungry and not having a job. So I think that if you really, if you wanted to really, you know, stop mass incarceration, if you could get the people who come out to stay out, that would significantly reduce the number of people behind bars. You know, and and telling people that they're trash, uh, I just that's nuts. That's just, uh, it's outrageous. Well, it's, not, it's unprofessional. You forget that the people who <laughs> yeah. are working in the facilities—that's their job. That's their job to when tell people they're trash. No, no, that's their job. To it's their profession. So you wouldn't walk into where you work every day 
and start telling someone that they're trash because that would be considered unprofessional behavior in the workplace. It's the same thing, really, when you think about it. It's the same principle that they're violating in calling people that they're trash <laughs> and, and other names, like a big sure. thing in women's prisons is calling people women whores or sluts or Ugh. something like that, that wouldn't be tolerated at your work. <laughs> it wouldn't be tolerated in my professional situation. So why is it tolerated there? Absolutely uh, uh, amazing. And uh, in, in the press release from the, the strike, which is, to me, it's amazing that they could get together, uh, the, the inside people could get together and even put out a press release and communicate with one another to have these various different points that they're striking for. One of the, the, the points in the press release which still it just impresses the heck out of me that they were able to do it. So no human shall be sentenced to death by incarceration or serve any sentence without the possibility of parole. Why not? What about those who commit what many regard as heinous crimes? I think that, yeah, death by incarceration is that is exactly what I was talking about before, that the, uh, no chance of release um, because it, it, essentially the, the state or the government gives up on you from the beginning and says there's no way that you'll ever be rehabilitated or redeem yourself so that we're just making that decision right now so you won't be let out. Um, there is a uh, the, the argument that people, certain people have committed heinous crimes is not lost on me. Um, I was in a maximum security facility with a number of women who were serving life without parole sentences for some very serious not more than serious crimes. Yeah. So that's not, I, I don't want anyone to, who's thinking that to think that that isn't a valid point. But the system that we have is not just one of incapacitation of when you, you know, get removed from society, you can't go back, you won't get better. But it's also supposed to make the person better and return them to freedom because that's the bedrock principle of this country, um, that people should be able to be free and make their own decisions. And if you can prove that you are capable of handling that, then you should get a chance to do that. Um, granted, there are people inside who have these life without parole sentences who really don't get it together and consistently prove that they are not going to play that nicely with sure. people outside. For that reason, I am okay with them, you know, staying inside until they prove, you know, a measure of rehabilitation and change because it's not fair for people to be victims of crimes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, from someone who's committed, you know, a serious crime and then just wasn't treated properly when he or she was inside. So th th that is, uh, I don't think that's a, there's an easy answer right. to the whole life without parole situation. But I think that as a Judeo-Christian nation, uh -huh. we can, we understand that there is redemption in everyone, at least the possibility of it. And the goal of the correction system is supposed to bring that out in everyone. And if it's working properly, then there shouldn't be a, uh, a, situ uh, a problem with someone who has committed a serious crime, paying their dues, yeah. serving their time, and then being able to pursue um, a, a normal life, a free life, and also pay back um, what they've taken from society through service to everyone. That's a good point. Pay back society what they've taken. Try to, I mean, the, the idea of justice is to make things whole. Now, if somebody is murdered, you obviously can't make that whole, ever. But And we certainly, we people on the outside, need to be protected from people who pose a danger to society, you know, people who enjoy killing and things like that. It's a good thing to keep us protected from uh, the people who do that kind of thing. But as you point out in a Judeo-Christian uh, uh, culture here, it is held that all people are redeemable. You write that, quote, because I've lived with people who've committed crimes, I know that one violent act does not a violent person make. 
I think that's a very interesting point. Please say more about that. Yeah, I mean, well, it's, it's particularly for women. Um, there's a, I don't know if you've been following what's happening with Governor Cuomo in New York City. A lot of times women are in abusive relationships. Yes. And when they fight back against an abuser, um, they are, it's criminalized and they are actually brought in for murder charges yeah. and other violent crimes when really what they were doing was trying to protect themselves from children. abusers. So yeah. I think that that's a, an important thing to remember as, when it comes to female prisoners because that, that there's a, very wide swath of women who really have no violent tendencies at all. They were just trying to save their lives or their children's lives, right. and now they've been branded as violent people. But even still, um, the mental illness, uh, uh-huh. it, 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 you know, the stressors that come from living in a society where inequality is rampant um, can make people break. So when sometimes if someone is to lose a job and they go and they, you know, beat up their boss or something like that. It's not an excusable act. I don't want anyone to think that I justify that or anything else, but I also know that there were, you know, some extraordinary stressors on that person that made them act out of character and in a way that they're not usually, they haven't, hadn't done before and will probably not do again once they understand their own triggers and the cause of their behavior. Plus, I think it's very important here to understand the, the role of trauma in creating bad and illegal behavior um, I could, I mean, we're talking about maybe 90, 95% of people in prison were sexually abused as children. Oh my. So when that trauma goes untreated, it creates a rage and a lack of, um, connection with the rules of society because rules were broken against them. That it mm. explains, at least from my perspective and watching all of this happen, it explains why people are unregulated in their emotions and their behavior because they have never, one, been, um, helped with what was done to them, and and that trauma will find an outlet somewhere. <laughs> and usually, unfortunately, it's someone who has nothing to do with mm-hmm. the original perpetration of the crime. But they, um, you know, trauma will find its its its, its way out. Um, and mm. that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about the criminal justice system: is that people who were traumatized and abused as children or neglected in severe ways uh, find a way to kind of settle the score. Even if that's not what they're consciously doing, that's really what's happening is that they're getting that trauma out in really maladaptive ways and other people become victims of it. The abused often become the abuser. It's so true. And it happens sometimes with uh, nations, actually. Uh, But... uh, Wow, you know, it, it, clearly, Shonda, you you got an education you never <laughs> intended to get, but it's quite an education. And that percentage of people in prison who've been abused as children—that th- stop me for a second—there was eight, some extremely high percentage. That, that it's were, almost a hundred percent. That's and geez, that's one of the things that I learned wow. listening to women around me, their stories, and then also doing some research. Is I don't know how you can miss these connections. That is the biggest connection. Yeah, really. Uh, between law breaking and you know like any kind of adverse experience in childhood it's usually childhood sexual abuse and how people act out and that's actually how i got writing is that i started to write about what i was witnessing with regards to that um i don't know if you Mm. remember the in connecticut we had a big murder case um it happened in 2007 and then it was tried later 2011 2012 it was called the cheshire murders it was a doctor's family oh yes murdered Mm -hmm. yeah it got national attention, but um, throughout the trial, it became very clear that both of the perpetrators had been severely abused as children. One of them severely sexually abused, 
so much to the point that like he was passed around through various foster home, homes where they knew he was being sexually abused by mm. people and no mm. one did anything about it. And for me, I don't understand what ex- what kind of result we expected by letting a young boy be abused like that, not doing anything to intervene and help him. I didn't I don't know what we thought he was going to become um in the future or how he was going to behave. And uh, as it turned out he behaved in a homicidal way in a very I mean he the facts of that crime are are horrible. The young girls were sexually assaulted, the mother was sexually assaulted, they were severely abused before they were murdered. So um we see what happens when we don't treat the trauma. It comes mm-hmm. out in very bad ways against people who have nothing to do with the original uh, crime. And so that's when I started writing about that because I was inside as that trial was going on. That's when I really started to say, I, this is something I need to say and explain. Because if we understood, we have a huge sex scandal going on in the Catholic Church where young people oh, yeah. were abused by priests. Oof. We have tremendous sympathy uh, for the victims now, but do you have sympathy for those victims when they're in a defendant's chair on trial uh-huh. for assaulting someone? Because it's 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 the same story. Uh-huh. It really is. It's just two ends of the same story. Interesting point. And what about people with uh, psychiatric and other problems in prisons? I can't help but think that prisons, a lot of the, I mean, putting them in solitary, obviously, is not a good idea. D- does it? Do they get treatment? Do they get reasonably good treatment for that? Or... Is it common for, you know, psychiatric and psychological problems to become significantly worse in prison? Well, I think prison would be crazy-making for anyone who's in it. I mean, I think that to, to view those kind of conditions as somehow normal right. um, and think that that's something that, you know, you could expect every day, I think that would twist anyone's mind. Yeah. But I think my experience was that there was far less organic mental illness, so like less of the bipolar, the depression, uh-huh the things like that, schizophrenia, then there were personality disorders. Um, and so I would say there isn't effective treatment for that inside. There's a, certainly a number of psychiatric medications that are prescribed mm-hmm. to almost anyone who wants them. Oh, yeah. But in terms of meaningful intervention or therapy, I would say that's really hard to come by. They do mm-hmm. offer, many prisons offer some group therapy situations, but if you get one person with sociopathic tendencies in a group situation, the therapeutic milieu goes out the window immediately. So (laughs) in my opinion, they're not effective at all. Um, And I would say that the people who are like maybe floridly psychotic from organic mental illness are actually pretty rare. And then if they Uh are there, they are unfortunately kind of sidelined in a mental health unit to keep them safe. Um, And from my experience, they don't spend that much time in the prison because the the prison ah. officials don't know what to do with those people. Uh, a prison is not supposed to be any type of facility that renders mental health care or physical health care. And I think a lot of times wardens are very successful when they have someone who's extremely mentally ill in getting them released to a hospital because uh, they just can't handle it. I mean, it's, a prison isn't designed for that. Well, at least they recognize that. And there is a grievance system, I understand, in, in prisons, and that has its unique problems. And I think that's one of the uh, issues that people are striking about, that just there are some aspects of the uh, grievance system itself that uh, is problematic. Talk about that, if you would, please. Sure. I mean, um, it used to be that you, if you had a problem in the prison, you could seek remedy through the courts, through a variety of different you could measures. You could say that your civil rights were violated or that you were caused damages or that your Eighth Amendment right against cruel and unusual punishment was violated. Um, 
because there were so many lawsuits happening um, years ago, I've, a lot of these really draconian laws were passed during the Clinton administration, and I don't think President Clinton had any idea of the negative effects they would have. But So the Prison Litigation Reform Act was enacted under Clinton, And it was to stem the tide of these number of lawsuits of people complaining about being mistreated. And some of the lawsuits, or many, were frivolous. The big example that they use is the um, guy who sued over, like, getting two jars of chunky peanut butter instead of one chunky, one creamy. So they were trying to stem those frivolous complaints. And what it ended up doing is setting up a system of administrative remedies that no inmate can actually uh, maneuver around. It's... It requires you to exhaust all of the remedies in the facility by filing complaints and stuff like that, and there are very strict deadlines on it. And if it, we have no control as inmates on whether or not someone honors the deadline. So if we were to file papers mm-hmm. and not get an answer in time to file the next round of papers, our grievance would be killed, and then we would also not be eligible to file lawsuit and get, you know, some type of court intervention um, through filing, filing suit. So that's what... I think the strikers are want to address is look if you if the prison litigation reform act has created these conditions whereby no one can get their uh, their problems solved at the local level and by local I mean really local like the wardens the COs the corrections officers things like that then we need to get rid of this law because it has reversed everything in such a way in terms of problem solving that pe- no one can get anything they can't get their medications reinstated they can't get a pair of shoes if they have their if their shoes have been stolen and they need a new pair things like that minor little things that really shouldn't be lawsuits um almost have to become them now because of the way the grievances are handled Uh, unintended consequences yet again and there's i don't know what percentage of, of people in american prisons are people of color it's a pretty high number i believe and Some of the demands uh, in the strikes uh, call for an immediate end to racist gang enhancement laws. Do you know what those are? I do not. Um, I think they're talking about internal classification system, because Uh. when when you're admitted to a prison or a jail, they have to, for safety purposes, try to assess to see if you are a member of a uh, recognized gang. And the reason for that is it was nothing like that where I was in Connecticut, but in like, say, California men's facilities, um, it's gangs that kind of run things. And there is they, these gang disputes often erupt into severe violence. So if someone they think that someone is part of a certain gang, then they try to keep them away from other gangs. So it's a, an, an internal classification process where, where you're going to house somebody or where you're going to keep them out of and things like that um, in, in the larger prison. So I think what they were saying is that there are probably a number of times where people who are not gang-affiliated but maybe have a certain tattoo or look like someone else in the gang or something like that, it, they are classified in such a way that they are, you know, sometimes a lot of gang members are actually kept in solitary confinement because they're, they fear that their violence will erupt. So I think that they're talking about, the, like, what the, the qualifications are to, to distinguish whether someone is, in fact, an active gang member. Um, I know a number of times people were not in gangs and were labeled as such for, oh, wow. for God knows what reason mm-hmm. um, where I was. And that those, because it was a relatively tame prison, those things usually got resolved within a number of days. But I imagine that someone who is either friends or brothers with someone who's in a gang might be 
labeled that way upon entry to to a facility and then relegated to solitary confinement for their entire time. And there's no way to prove a negative. How do you prove that you're not involved in gang activity? Mm -hmm. Um, Especially if you are kept by yourself, you, you mean, maybe there might be some evidence if you were interacting with people, but so it's really impossible to prove that you're not in a gang. Right. And I think that's what the strikers wanted to address because the, the, the penalty, it's not, they don't call it a punishment. They'll say it's a safety measure. Uh-huh. But the penalty for being affiliated with a gang is quite severe. It's a long-term um, separation from the general population in solitary confinement. And, and it can really uh, worsen someone's mental status and their ability to rehabilitate themselves. Oh, I'm sure. And certainly racism did not end with the victory of the North over the South in the Civil War. I wonder about racism. I mean, obviously, there's a lot more people of color in prison than people, you know, white people. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about racial overcharging and oversentencing and parole denials of black and brown humans. Is there something discernible about the difference in, in such uh, issues? Well, I, I didn't see that myself right. in terms of, because I, I didn't um, actually watch every parole but I can imagine that systematic racism does find its way into these very important decisions of whether someone can live in the prison or live at, at home. Um, where we see the biggest, in my opinion, biggest problem in terms of racial disparities is marijuana arrests, um, because mm-hmm. it's expected that white kids are just kind of having fun and chilling out. But when black people engage in the same behavior, that it's um, like it, it's something to be criminalized and really punished. Yeah. Um, it also shows the difference between um, how uh, populations of color and how white populations are policed, because most pe- white people, at least ones that I know, who smoke pot aren't anywhere near any cop to that would ever think about busting them. Whereas right. the presence of police in black co- in communities of color is more constant and closer. So any type of even minor drug use um, will be caught and prosecuted very quickly and very severely. So that's, for me, that's what I see, um, is the the marijuana arrest. I think there was a study that was done in the Minneapolis Police Department where something like, (laughs) like, you know, one person arrested who was white and then several hundred who were black. It was, it was, the differences in the arrest rates were quite stark. To compare that in terms of other crimes, um, given what, how people plead out their crimes and stuff like that, it's actually really hard to study to see what the differences are. But we have, in the times that statisticians have been able to kind of extract and, and you know, do what they need to do to figure out, to compare sentences amongst people that might not otherwise be considered uh-huh. equal, there are, sentences are enhanced for people of color most of the time. Not always, because there's also this whole idea of that the one kind of white whale, for lack of a better term, if we sentence him or her especially hard, then it makes up for the 20 people of color who we sentence ah. to something else. I think that's <laughs> what happened in my case, that I was, you know, to, to make sure that they didn't go, appear to have gone easy on me, uh, they gave me a rather severe, severe sentence because I was an upper-middle-class white woman, and they were not going to be accused of going easy on me oh, and I then see. hard on someone, say, from... Uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut, which is a, a uh-huh. relatively impoverished right. city in Connecticut, which uh, has a, a high number of people of color. Oh, lucky you. Uh, and yep. re- reading gives people, as you say, reading gives people in prison hope. But some states want to take their books away. 
That seems excessively inhumane. Tell us about that effort, please. I mean, if you can't, how can they take away books from people? Is it because they think they're going to get, you know, ideas and become, you know, switch from, say, Malcolm Little to Malcolm X and be an organizer and and a troublemaker? What do you know about that? I think they, that's part of it. I think there are two reasons for restricting reading materials. One is the censorship issue, which is that they, like um, things like maps of the facility, um, they don't want things like that inside well, yeah. so people can ex- plan an escape and things like that. <laughs> that's, I think, legitimate given sure. you know, what, the, what the risks could be and what the, the fallout could be if someone isn't properly um, kept incarcerated. But I think that there, we're back to the original point about the math of uh, the prison industrial complex and how many companies make money off of incarcerated people. I don't know that it's necessarily that they don't want inmates to have books. I think they want them to have books <laughs> that are purchased from a, a designated company who's going to reap a ton of profit oh, off of book sales <laughs> if it, all the book sales are, are funneled to them. So I know from my experience, like if we had family members who ordered books from Amazon from us, if they were not objectionable and on the censors list, they, they were allowed in. I think what when we're talking about restricting books to inmates, it's, it's restricting the source of the books to assure that some private company gets a lock on the market and has a monopoly over providing reading materials. So I don't think that wardens would fully admit, I don't want my the people in my facility reading, but they will probably admit, I want them reading, but I want them to buy it from this vendor <laughs> that <laughs> I've identified and who very likely I may be getting a kickback from. Oh, my. And we all have heard about, uh, you know, private prisons, uh, for-profit prisons. That's, a, I believe, about 6% of prisons. But it sounds like uh, what a lot of people would find objectionable is in, in for-profit prisons happens in public prisons, you know, in, in government uh, uh, prisons, you know, with the uh, uh, having a, a closed-in market and, uh, you know, a total monopoly of sales. Uh, that's yes, amazing. yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I'm, prison, private prisons get, or for-profit prisons, get the, uh, the bad rap that they sure. deserve. Don't get yeah. me wrong. Oh, yeah. But there aren't enough of them to make, to, like, lay the pr- prison industrial complex problems at their feet. Uh-huh. I mean, every... Public government-run prison is also a moneymaker for someone. I know, know down in Alabama there was an issue late last year with sheriffs being able to take the excess of the inmate food budget from the jail and keep it for themselves. This was actually legal. So if I, <laughs> I were heard about someone that, yeah. allotted 750000 for to feed all the inmates in one um, jurisdiction for a year and I managed to feed them for 200000 I could get 550000 for myself. Um, and this was like there were stories of, yes. you know, um, sheriffs buying beach houses and buying used car dealerships. And the inmates inside were getting one hot dog a day because they were trying to restrict um, yeah. how much they spent on, on food. That has nothing to do with a private company. Right. <laughs> there's, there's no private entity. It's all government employees, a government facility and people who are being held held in custody of the government. So we can't bra- blame that on private business, but it's still morally reprehensible, yeah. the fact that someone can be able to say, you won't eat so that I can get this big windfall and get luxury homes and things like that. Um, so, yeah. I mean, private prisons are bad, like I said, but they're not the whole problem right. here. Right. Um, the problem is that people are just see packing bodies into these facilities as a way to get rich. Oh, my goodness. Well, what can people on the outside do? And I know that a lot of the laws, the old Rockefeller laws, came because no no 
politician wanted to look soft on crime. What what can people do? Are there is, are people in Congress aware of what's going on here? Or what can people do? Well, I think um, I mean from the political perspective, it. I don't think anyone wants to be soft on crime. Crime isn't good. I don't think you would. You'd be hard pressed to find anyone who yeah. says yes. We want more crime to happen in society. <laughs> what we can be though is soft on judgment when someone has transgressed and broken the law served their time, had a measure of accountability, and are, is re-entering, that we receive them in such a way <clears throat> that we give them the chance and the tools to succeed. Like I said, if we're releasing 650,000 uh, people a year, we can drastically reduce the number of people in prison and how much that costs us if we allow them to re-enter society as full human beings. And by that, I mean what people can do is if they have a, if they rent, have rental properties, is not check the backgrounds of applicants, or if they do, still rent to them and not have that be the automatic disqualifier that it is. You can hire people who are formerly incarcerated. Just doing that would change someone's trajectory, you know, in, in a way that no one pr- can really kind of imagine to have a job and a reason to yeah, yeah. get up in the morning and to get a little bit of money so you can uh, pay your bills and, and eat. That is a huge blow to cr- crime in general. Um, and it's also just I think being more open about talking about criminal pasts and the fact that someone is in prison, the stigma is so severe right now that people feel like they can't talk about it or talk about what they went through at some time because this is taboo. If people were to make a more open space in their workplaces, in their social spaces, in their churches, where people could talk about where they were, what happened, how they redeemed themselves, I think it would be a lot easier for everybody to um, get on with their lives. Let's leave this terrible scourge on our society of mass incarceration behind by looking totally forward with hope um, and confidence that people can behave properly when they are supported properly. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that this is very eye-opening. If people are interested in uh, following your work, the uh, website is Prison Diaries. I don't know what else uh, you can point to. Just Google Prison Diaries. Is that it? It's prison-diaries.com. Okay. Um, You can Google it, too. Uh, And then my website also has the commentary that I've written outside of Prison Diaries for some national publications. So everything we've talked about here today, Burr, is there, too, and more in-depth. Terrific. Chandra Bazelko, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you for having me, Bert. And we're going to go into a song with Mose Allison, Parchment Farm, talking about one of the early uh, slave farms. Listen to the words if you can. Well, I'm sitting over here on Parchment Farm. I'm sitting over here on Parchment Farm Well, I'm sitting over here on Parchment Farm And I ain't never done no man no harm Well, I'm putting that cotton in an 11-foot sack Cotton in a 11 foot sack Well I'm putting that cotton in a 11 foot sack With a 12 gauge shotgun at my back mm-hmm. 